Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by, a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed, making offerings to the Queen of Heaven, and pour out drink offerings to her, as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women said, When we made offerings to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? And a pause there and then skip down to verse 25. I'm in Jeremiah 44, now verse 25. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the Queen of Heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. Then confirm your vows and perform your vows. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man in Judah, of, of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord God lives. Behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them. And those who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number, and all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live shall know know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. This far we read in God's holy word. As I said, I previously preached the entire chapter, referenced that message, but I wanted to zero in on just one important lesson here before moving on to chapter 45, Lord willing, to draw your attention to these verses and an important warning about worshiping other gods. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord God. Chapter 44 is not the end of the book, but it's the last words of Jeremiah. It's the last encounter between Jeremiah and the people who ran away into Egypt in order to Um, get away from what they saw as God's punishment. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. In this event, this words of Jeremiah took place months after they arrived in Egypt. The people were now settled in various places far away from one another across the country. You'll notice from the list of names, the town names. They've been settled. They're there for, for months And yet they come together on some occasion here for Jeremiah to speak to all of them collectively. All of them came together. Perhaps the people had traveled to some festival and now Jeremiah has this opportunity, this last opportunity to speak to them. So, for example, look back to verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt at Migdal, at Taphanhes, at Memphis, and in the land of Pathros. So you get the idea. They were scattered and yet they came together now for this occasion. So what did Jeremiah say to them? 
basically, uh, be warned about idols. But let me spell it out for you. So I'll just do a quick review to orient you until we get to our verse 15. So verse 2, Jeremiah says, you saw the destruction of Jerusalem. You're aware of what happened in Jerusalem, that God destroyed it, including his temple. Verse 3, why did God destroy it? Because the people worshipped other gods, basically. There's other sins too, but that's the primary one. Verse 4, God sent many prophets to warn people about this idolatry. Verse 5, but the people didn't listen. They kept on making offerings to other gods. Verse 6, God destroyed them. It's very clear. The lesson from history is abundantly clear. Everybody understands it, and yet it gets reviewed Yes, here once more. And then verses 7 through 14, God showed that the remnant of people now living in Egypt are committing the same sin of idolatry to the same God. How can you expect a different result? What this God does, what this God has recently done, is he has destroyed people who serve other gods. It brings us to the main point of today's sermon, which begins in verse 15. The Lord cautions us against the deadly allure of idolatry symbolized by the goddess, the queen of heaven, and God rescues us through Christ the king. Uh, So first we look at how this idolatry requires believing two lies. Secondly, we'll see how many people are disarmed by mass public approval of idolatry, but it's still a deadly trap. And third, how idolatry presents itself as innocent and harmless but in the end is revealed as very wicked and a lethal choice. So first, our first point, idolatry requires believing two lies. This passage reveals the answer of the people to God through his prophet Jeremiah. God warned them about idolatry, and then verse 15, the people answer. So we're picking up the story where the people answer. They knew that they were caught in making uh, offerings to other gods. But in verse 16, they said, we will not listen to God's warnings. How do we understand that? Are they really that dense? It just seems on the surface that they really ought to get the picture and get the warning. Why is it? What's motivating the people? If we dig a little bit, there's something important for us to grasp about these people. Verse 17, they will be loyal to their own vows to the queen of heaven. Now, who's that? You ever heard of the queen of heaven? Well, first of all, she's misnamed. It should be the queen of perdition or the queen of damnation or the queen of the H-E double toothpicks. You know, H-E double toothpicks? Queen of that other place, I'm just being polite but not saying it here, but it is in the Bible. Who is this? Who are we talking about? The queen was the center of a false religion, ironically, actually, a religion from Babylon, and yet they're in Egypt. It was just another way to turn away from the Lord God. Does it matter what it is? It was sort of a a folk religion. It was superstitious, and they had services to honor people. It's based on uh, the moon, Perhaps the planet Venus, a goddess named uh, Ishtar, or you could um, say this name as Ashtoreth or Astare. It's an ancient known religion. They, They would worship this queen by making cakes in the shape of figurines. They would literally do this, like we make cupcakes. You make, you have a football party and you have a a cake in the shape of a football, right? So that they would make cakes in the shape of figurines. They literally did this. It was actually strong superstition and included whole families and whole communities. We actually saw this already back in chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 7, where Jeremiah addressed Jerusalem before the destruction of the city. And he was talking to them about their worshiping of these 
uh, this false queen in his famous temple sermon. Remember that? Let me quote from that. Jeremiah 7, 18. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods. Jeremiah 7, verse 18. You know what that is? It's basically a family barbecue. And the, instead of serving the Christian God, everybody's got a role. Dad does this, mom does this, kids do this. It's a family thing. And they're all worshiping this false queen God. You know, some local deity, local religion. Now come back to our study here, Jeremiah 44. Look at verse 17. The people believed in those days everything was good. The people believed that it was innocent to do this. We can make these cakes. Jeremiah needs to chill. It's just these cakes to the queen of heaven. They believed it was Jeremiah who ruined everything. You have to understand their logic. Jeremiah is the one who forced them back in chapter 7 to give up worshiping the queen of heaven. Listen to them. Listen to how they say it. I'll read it a second time now. I read it in the scripture reading. We're looking at verses 16 and 17 of Jeremiah 44. As for the word that you spoke to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. This is the people saying to Jeremiah, we will not listen to you. Verse 17. But we will do everything that we have vowed, making offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. Listen, listen, listen. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. End quote. That's verse 17. Lie number one. The worship of the queen of heaven or some false god is innocent because it only brings us harmless goodies. Lie number one. What are the goodies? Plenty of food. They list them out. Plenty of food, prosperity, no disaster. That's all people want. Just carve out a little dome for me here where I can have my people, I can have my goodies, and no disasters. Nothing threatens my little fiefdom. And as long as I can have that, leave me alone. They're carving out this little life for themselves as they want it, as they define it. Jeremiah is the one making a federal case about it. This isn't any big deal, Jeremiah. You know what ruined it? Lie number two, God ruined it in partnership with his own prophet Jeremiah. Listen to verse 18 now. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. That's the second lie of idolatry. It only takes two. The required second lie is that being loyal to God and being pure in your worship to God alone is the recipe that brings the lack of food, lack of financial prosperity, lack of the good life, and it actually ends up in disaster. It's God who ruined it. It's Jeremiah who ruined it. They are responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. How's that for turning everything on its head? How's that for exchanging the truth for a lie? Excuse me. Idolatry trains our minds to believe lies, such as God only brings us burdens. God only brings us troubles. That's a lie. He actually blamed the entire fall of Jerusalem on ceasing to make cakes for the queen of heaven. It's all Jeremiah's fault. So this time, now they're down in Egypt. 
they actually had no intention of making that same mistake again. So they're saying to Jeremiah, we will not listen to you. You blew it in Jerusalem. We're not going to let you blow it when you're down here in Egypt. We're not listening. We're not falling for that. We're not going to stop making cakes to the queen of heaven. We're not changing based on God's commands. Rather, we're going to continue to offer, and we're going to make sure to do all that we vowed to do in the false worship of shaping these cakes to the false queen, and we choose our goddess instead of God. They're turning everything upside down. This is what Paul says later in Romans 1. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's Romans 1. Jeremiah is saying the same thing that Paul wrote later. Jeremiah's warning about serving other gods, and it's in his last speech, because it's been in all of his speeches since the start. He's been trying to get the people to see the danger and the wrong. Moses warned about serving other gods. It's the first of the Ten Commandments. And don't get me started on all of Deuteronomy. Paul warns about serving other gods. It's in the first chapter of Romans. The Apostle John warns about serving other gods. And what's the last impression the Apostle John writes in his first letter, letter of 1 John? The very last thing he wrote? 1 John 5.21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's there for Moses. It's there for Jeremiah. It's there for, John, for Paul. It's there for John. It's there in the teaching of Jesus. This is a big issue. This is an important thing for us to track. How are we doing with regard to the first commandment? Are we shoving God aside and putting other things in, or are we trying to do a mixture? I can worship God. I can also have these things. Tone down, preacher. Give it a chill pill, dude. I can do this and still be a Christian. And that's all been tried before, brothers and sisters. That mixture thing has all been tried before. Move to our second point. Many people are disarmed by public mass approval of idolatry, but it's still a deadly trap. How did so many people fall into these lies? Verse 19, the women say they offer cakes and drinks to the queen of heaven made in the image of her and that they had the approval of their husbands. So husbands and wives and children and families and communities. How, many, how could so many people fall into these lies? How did they get there? Verse 25, we will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. How do they get so devoted and dedicated to offering cakes to the queen of what now? How do crowds of people become so committed to lies that they make vows and then they're loyal to those vows to the queen to make cakes for her and drinks besides? One aspect of it is mass public approval. Everybody's doing it. But Moses says no, Jeremiah says no, later Jesus warns and Paul warns and John warns against public approval that just because everybody's doing it doesn't make it right, that God tells us the truth through his spokesman. 
God tells us what's right. God tells us what's wrong. God says he is to be honored and he is to be praised and pure worship is essential. God tells us idolatry is not innocent. Idolatry is a wicked and deadly trap. One of the special strengths of idolatry is its broad appeal. Idolatry gets husbands and wives involved together. Idolatry has a place for children too. This is what they're supposed to do, and they get trained up in it. This is the part that you play, and these are the words that you say. It's all so cute that the whole family is involved, and everybody's shown their spot, and it all works. It's slick. Idolatry takes persons and marriages and families and communities and entraps them in circles of falsehood, and only God and his spokesman can break in with truth. All the community believes that the lie is God is the killjoy. Those who preach God's word are the problem. Ah, stop bringing us all this exclusivity and purity and thou shalts. If the Christian church would just relax and tamp down, we could peacefully coexist with God and a little bit of idolatry on the side. Why can't God share worship anyway? Why does God have to hog all of our time and all of our worship? And the lie goes like this. If you look at the lives of the people who are all in and purely devoted to the worship of God and God alone, those lives, if we're honest with ourselves, are the ones that are filled with suffering, burdens, and troubles. It's quite a theory, but it's a straight-up lie. Christians suffer. That's true. Christians are called to suffer, and we better settle into that truth as well. Why not follow the queen of heaven? Oh, there's the lie. It's rather pleasant over here, they say. That's a lie. We have good food and family time. We have peace and prosperity. No disasters befall us. Come on over. Lies, lies. Here's what we agree about. We agree about a few things. Number one, God demands exclusive worship. Won't stand for any idolatry anywhere. And secondly, that God calls his people to suffer. That's true. But they're wrong about quite a few things. Number one, worshiping a goddess is not innocent. It's not peace and prosperity for very long. And when God's people suffer, God promises to never leave them and never forsake them. Shout that from the mountaintops. And the downfall of Jerusalem was caused by the sin of idolatry and other sins. It was not caused by God. It was not caused by God's spokesman. It was not caused by the truth and the warnings and the grace offered. God's king is the one to be worshipped. And for God's king is the one who came to save us from all of our idolatry. We move to our third point. Idolatry presents as innocent and harmless, but the end is revealed as a very wicked and lethal choice. Verse 26, the people who desire to have God in one hand, idols in the other hand, forfeit the right to call on the name of the Lord. Forfeit the right to call on the name of the Lord. Read that, verse 26. He's withdrawing their right to say, you are my God and I am your person, I'm your, we are your people. He's withdrawing their right to call on him as covenant God. Verse 27, God, instead of being the one who will watch over you for good and protection, becomes the one who brings disaster. That's truth. The lie is exactly the reverse of this truth. 
Verse 28, in the end, we will all know and we will all observe which theory of reality turns out to be the true one. Just fast forward 1,500 years. 15,000 years. 15 million years. Take your pick. We will all know what the truth is in this big debate, God says at the end of verse 28. God's word or the lies of worshipers of other gods? It's one or the other. God's word is true or it's not true. And one day, everyone will see that answer. Everyone in Egypt, everyone in ancient Egypt, everyone in Jerusalem and ancient Jerusalem, everyone who went to Egypt and came back to Jerusalem, everyone in the days of Moses, everyone in the days of Jeremiah and Jesus and the apostles, Paul and John, everyone through church history since then, everyone in the world today, everyone in this room, everyone who's listening to me, whether right now live or months from now on a recording, you will know the truth in the end. That's what verse 28 says. But what Romans 1 says is you know the truth right now. You know the answer to this. Idolatry presents us with lies of innocence and harmlessness. But in reality, it's guilt and destruction. It's wicked and lethal. Idolatry is as dangerous and lethal a problem as you can find for your spiritual walk. It's spiritual suicide. Idolatry was described in chapter 2 of Jeremiah as drinking water from another cistern. Idolatry was described in chapter 10 as the fact that idols are nothing more than scarecrows in a cucumber field. And idolatry is truly dangerous as we're uncovering now in chapter 44. Goddess worship. Goddess worship is a very great sin. These Jews who ran away to Egypt loved to worship their goddess. And Jeremiah is calling them on it. The Jews would rather worship their goddess, this false queen, than the true king of the universe. Where do we see idolatry today? Let's say you fast forward years into the future and you dig through where we're living the things that we see, the things that we do, whether it's the computers and the websites and all the things that we say and do, how our lives really went. Archaeologists have uncovered the ancient kitchens and they actually found baking molds used to shape into the goddess of these sweet little cakes. They literally happen. They have the molds. What if a couple centuries from now we dig through where we're living? What would we find? I got a couple ideas for you. Number one, we'll find a lot of statues to Mary. The mother of Jesus. I want to be careful. I want to be clear. Mary was a good and godly believer and an example to us, and we will see her in heaven. Praise God for Mary. However, worshiping Mary is not a harmless addition to the Christian community. Worshiping Mary is rank pagan idolatry. We must not pray to her as a mediator, a mediatrix, or a co-redemptionatrix. She's a sinner saved by grace, brought to her and to all of us through her son Jesus, who's also the son of God and son of man. Mary was under the early Christians who praised God, Acts 1.14. They were not gathered there to worship Mary, but Christ and him alone. We join with Mary in praising 
Christ for our salvation. So they'll find a lot of statues of Mary when they dig through what we're living in. Second thing, future archaeologists will find a lot of attention to a goddess Sophia, the Greek word wisdom, radical feminists. Radical feminists take up the Bible and try to do theology. Radical feminist theology twists the Bible to encourage idol worship of this goddess, and they claim it's in the scriptures. For three decades already, some runaway churches have sung praises to Sophia. And it's not just the end of October. It's year-round. For three decades, writing new hymns, inventing unholy sacraments. Don't you think the cakes and the drinks are some kind of alternate sacrament? It's the worship of a female god which goes against the Bible. Third, future archaeologists will worship, find the worship of the witch goddess Wicca, the goddess of satanic power. Witchcraft is on the rise in our country, and they'll find all kinds of articles about it. Tens of thousands of nuns have left the Catholic Church for witchcraft and occult, and in a way, they're just exchanging one goddess for another. Fourth thing, future archaeologists will find the worship of the female body. I've got to be careful here, too. My heart goes out to you, sisters in the Lord. You're living in a place that's oppressive. They expect you to look a certain way. And so you've believed the lie, and you believe you have to look a certain way. And in some ways, maybe our culture is changing in that. But the female body is worshipped. Either your own body or the body of another. The intimacy activities that come around with it, sure. But more than that, it's just the glamour. Our ads and our websites and our phones and computers and televisions and other screens, the magazines and billboards have female bodies on display. And even sporting events, they're supposed to be at a sporting event. They have female bodies on the sidelines always. Why is that there? There's a lot of talk about it being innocent and harmless. Oh, it's just innocent. It's just harmless. But think of it. Look at the money they put into shoes and clothes and makeup and perfume and jewels and accessories to show... It shows a national-level attention to worship. This is nothing less than worship of an image. You say little cakes in the ancient way, and now we do it in all these other ways. Shopping is big because glamour is queen. Fashion, beauty. We literally make cakes to her, and cookies, and brownies, and muffins, and cupcakes, and we've graduated from that to all sorts of images of her. We worship her as a society, and I think future archaeologists will tell the truth on this. And the question comes closer to home. What is your idol? What competes with your attention to Christ and him alone? That all that you have and all that you are belong to him and to him alone. What gets in the way of that? That's your idol. What do you like to do that keeps you from worshiping God and serving God? What are, you, are you willing to follow a God who calls you to suffer? Are you willing to follow a God who has your friends suffer, your brother and sister in the Lord suffer? Does that cause a disruption in your faith in this God? He promises to abide in us in our suffering. Is that not sufficient for you? We are all guilty of worshiping wrong gods and the warnings in this passage are needed for each of us because we keep on gravitating towards false gods all the time. Jesus came. He came himself into this world. The fulfillment of all the prophecies of Jeremiah and the other prophets. That God the Father sent his own son Jesus into the world. And he came, why? 
in order to gather us in true worship, but we would not gather. Matthew 23, 37, how often I would have gathered, Jesus says, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You think that's only the ancient people in Jeremiah's day? You think that's only the ancient people in Jesus' day? That's today. He longs to gather us as a hen gathers her brood and we would not. What are we doing? Jesus then went to the cross and died and rose again to pay for our sins of idolatry in order to gather us anyway. We did not want to gather. So Jesus changed what we want. He changed what we desire. Our Savior changes our wills so that we desire to gather to him and to his people. We desire to worship God together and not the idols anymore. Jesus is the temple of Jerusalem that was destroyed in God's wrath and judgment for our sins. He's the temple of Jerusalem that was raised again on the third day in God's grace and salvation for us. He's the temple whom we worship We have become his temple and he is here as we worship him together. He is the king of heaven. The king of heaven. The queen doesn't even exist. The whole thing's false. It's a ruse. It's a lie, straight up lie. There is no queen. There's only the king of heaven and he's as real as you. The king of heaven calls us to worship him. And so we do. We've gathered today to worship him. He brings us blessing. He provides for us. He reminds us of his reality and his care for us. He calls us to suffer, accompanies us in our suffering by his spirit and word. And following Jesus, we know is the right choice, the only decision that brings new life from above, forgiveness for our wrongs, new desires within. We're made alive. Together with Christ, by action of God the Father, we have his promises, we have his presence. He enables us to keep his commands, starting with the first one. Have no other gods before me. And we delight to do so. We repent of all of them before our gracious Father in heaven. I have two conclusions to try to apply this great truth to us. Number one, we daily worship God in his word and prayer. We daily worship God in his word and prayer. Every day when you wake up, you have a choice. You're going to worship the queen or the king? The queen is any false god. The king is the only true and living God, the son of God the Father, second person of the Trinity, son of man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, ascended to heaven, sent his spirit, and is coming again. That's the king. Every day when you wake up, you get to decide, am I going to worship some queen or am I going to worship the king? Personal devotions, marriage devotions and worship, all it takes is the Bible and prayer. That's why the fathers all throughout the Reformed tradition have taken supper time as an opportunity to open the scriptures with their wives and with their children whom God has provided and any of their guests. And we search for the king in the scriptures. I still remember the passionate prayers of my grandfather around a supper table. And I have to admit, my eyes weren't closed. I was looking right at him. My grandfather pouring out his help before God in front of the whole family. You want to change a family? You want to grasp a child's heart? You want to change our generation? That's where it happens. God is on the move. When families come around a dinner table and they seek him like they're seeking food, Children remember the songs they sang at dinner time decades ago and at bedtime too. 
the runaway Jews were committed to the queen while in Egypt. They made vows and they kept those vows. Do we keep our vows? We need our vows that we make on the day the child is baptized in our church to mean something, that we train them up in the scriptures to remind them on a daily basis to worship the consistent and true living God and not fall for all the traps of our culture. So that's number one. Daily we come to him in the word and prayer. And number two, our last one, we bring our loved ones to church to hear teaching and preaching of Christ. I used to think what a shame it is how Mother's Day, Father's Day, the Super Bowl, multiple golf championships, and even the Indianapolis 500 all land on Sundays. It made me mad, actually. You know I'm a pastor, so you're not surprised by this. It made me mad. But the more I think about it, I see God's wisdom as it's a God-designed teaching opportunity. It's a challenge to us. What are we demonstrating to ourselves? What are we demonstrating to God? What are we saying to our children, to our extended families? Who's more important, the queen of this clan or the king of heaven? You look ahead in the next 25 years. Do you actually think there's going to be more activities on Sunday competing with worship or less activities on Sunday competing with worship? If you just were mapping out your guess for the next 25 years, you think this is a new problem? Do you think this is going away? You think it's going to get worse? What's your prediction? Who says we couldn't gather on Saturday with our mothers or our fathers or our families? Or better yet, who says we can't come to church and bring the whole clan with us? Because in our clan, you could say, We worship the king of heaven. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then we call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It's not just children, but it's other loved ones. I remember a man in Pennsylvania. I served a church in Pennsylvania decades ago before God brought me here. I served a church there, and a man who was a member of our church, very faithful, delightful man. Eileen knows exactly who I'm talking about. He's not, his wife was not a believer. We saw her twice a year. Because every time she turned to her husband, and she'd say, what do you want for your birthday? He says, honey, the only thing I want is that you'll come sit next to me to worship the God that I love. And she would do it. And then every year when it came to Father's Day, honey, what do you want for Father's Day? Said, you know, the only thing I want for you to come sit next to me when I worship the God that I love. And so she'd come. And I literally had the privilege, twice a year, to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to her. And who knows what God will do with that. And so we're called not just to bring children, but to bring our loved ones, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. We have the privilege to say to them here, be careful, brother and sister, careful friend not to worship a goddess. So many people in our culture are doing it. You're in the soup. You're in a false soup. How do you even see through the fog? Come here to see. She doesn't exist. She's a lie. You call on anyone you care about to worship the only God who exists, the King of Heaven. I end with this. 1 Timothy 1.15 The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Father.